Welcome to another edition of First Word from First Church. This is Pastor Dave Buchanan at the First Church in Sutton. Please enjoy the message and may God bless you richly through it. And he began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Again he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can one give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You have a one in four chance. It's not as obvious in this story, but when you've got a story like last week's version of The Temptation, that's like the Reader's Digest condensed version when it's brutally short to the point, when it's a gospel that goes through in only 16 chapters, pounding the story. That's Mark. Mark was the no-nonsense, no-frills, no-storytelling, straight down the pipe, cliff notes, well, not quite cliff notes, but kind of the Reader's Digest condensed version of the gospel. Matthew adds all the preacher's stories. Luke adds a lot of the history and culture, and John adds the godliness. That's how I remember them. In fact, teaching point, this big beautiful new cathedral. Raleigh, North Carolina, until a couple of years ago, had the smallest cathedral in the United States. It still sits next to this great big edifice that's now one of the largest. Go figure. If you're going to build a new one, don't stop halfway. Up in front of the church were four great big gilded symbols. We had carved ones at St. Paul's down in Pennsylvania. And there was a, a man with wings. Not an angel. I know that's deceiving. Then there was a lion with wings, and an ox with wings, and it's going to sound redundant, but an eagle with wings. And in the Revelation, the four strange beasts resemble these four symbols. And my brother-in-law said, Dave, I look at those great big symbols, and they're utterly alien to me. What are they? The man with wings is because Matthew emphasizes the human nature of Christ. Then we have the lion with wings because in Mark he's labeled the lion of Judah, the heritage of the son of David. The ox with wings because although worthy is the lamb, but the most expensive and valuable animal of sacrifice was an ox. So the ox with wings is Luke who emphasizes the suffering servant. A lot of other things, but that's the general gist. And the one that starts in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God is John the highest 
In theology, we call it Christology, the highest view of our Lord Christ coming from the side of God. So it's an eagle. So those are the, the four symbols that grew out of the nature of the different gospels. So if you see those, in fact, trivia point, if you're driving down the street here on Boston Road and you go past the Catholic Church, what's the sign have on it in front of the rectory? Hey, I'm the, I'm the foreigner here, I'm the guest. There's a winged lion on the rectory sign of St. Mark's. Go figure. Anyway, sorry for the segue. You know I like to do that. I can't help it. But here we have a very pointed, poignant story from Mark. Jesus is now teaching the hard stuff. Grace and mercy are wonderful. Healing is great. Showing miracles so that people come to faith. Certainly casting out demonic presence or illness. Wonderful things. And now he says, but this is what the Son of Man has to go through. Going to suffer. Going to be rejected by the religious leaders of the time. Elders, chief priests, and scribes alike. And be killed. And after three days rise again. And, a, and he said this plainly. Apparently this is the first time he's laid this out. Without allegory, without parable, without paraphrase, without circumlocution. Which means to talk around something. No, he went straight tracks through it this time. Poor Peter. Now this time he gets to be called Peter, but through the Gospels, the different writers sometimes will call him Simon when he's not doing right, and Peter when he is, because Peter is the rock, the name Jesus gave him. And Shimon or Shimeon was what his parents called him. Well, he gets the name Peter, but he gets named worse. Imagine being so full of worldly wisdom, so full of what doesn't really need to happen that you'd look Jesus in the face and say, now, Jesus, you shouldn't be saying that. You're going to upset people. That doesn't really have to happen. That's nerve. Now, remember, I often refer to Simon Peter as the disciple with his foot in his mouth because he did. He, he blundered into things. He's one who blund he'll blunder into the tomb on Easter morning. He'll get frightened and say, I'll never deny you, but deny Jesus three times and people confront him. Disciple with his foot in his mouth more often than not. Here he, here he jams both feet in up to the knee, I think. He takes him aside, begins to rebuke him, but not far enough because Jesus looks over and sees the disciples see him trying to rebuke his teacher. And we don't use rebuke in modern English because it's a hard-sounding word. To take someone to task is to rebuke them. And he turns it right back like it should have been in the first place. Peter! Now he really gives him a new name. Get behind me, Satan. Wow. Simon Peter, the rock on which Jesus would build his church. The first bishop, if you will, of the council in Jerusalem, the very seat and home of the church. And Jesus says, you're a tool of Satan if you're saying that. Wow. Pull no punches there, Jesus. You're setting your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. I've heard this in 
varying settings where somebody says, I heard this even sadly in a now closed seminary, well, Jesus didn't really have to die. Huh? What? I looked up again at the sign and did say it was a congregational seminary. I didn't get it. And others who said it was cosmic child abuse on the part of God the Father. Seriously, I can't make these phrases up. It, would, it drives me nuts. And I was sitting one time, this was in another state, about 25 years ago, so don't get any delusions around here. The president of a Protestant denomination stood before an area conference, and I happened to have my mentor from Maine visiting sitting next to me who was far more educated in this stuff than I was. And they were asking about somebody who claimed to keep his ordination in the Christian denomination, but he had joined the Nation of Islam. And they asked the, this president of the denomination, what about this individual? Well, there are many ways to God. Jesus is the one that I choose, but I'm sure if my friend so-and-so really believes that he can follow the Nation of Islam and still be a follower of Jesus, he's, he's sincere in that. And my mentor elbowed me and said, David, did you just hear what I heard? Because this is my markish, brutal way of saying it. If Jesus didn't have to die on the cross, this is the greatest act of cruelty and of farce in the history of the world that we believe in. If we are not in our worldly state in need of a an atoning sacrifice for us or die spiritually ourselves, then Jesus' death on the cross was an utter waste. And it was not, certainly. If we understand, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, how do I know my state of misery, our state of fallenness, our state of brokenness, our state of distance from God, that we need Jesus to do this, and even Peter, who'd been traveling with him for several years, didn't get it. Lord, don't talk like that. You're going to upset people. That's not going to win followers by telling the hard part of the gospel. Well, watering down the gospel doesn't seem to draw followers either, because then there's not much message to come to church for, let alone commit our lives to. And he said that you're focusing on the things of the world not on the things of God. Now, we just read last week about Jesus being tempted in the desert and telling Satan himself, I'm dwelling on the word of God. I'm, I'm, I'm obeying my father, not your temptation. Here, poor Peter saying, can't we take the easy road, Jesus? You don't really have to do this, do you? I just read a, Quote, and I think I might have posted on the church Facebook page from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor, theologian during the Third Reich in Germany. But he was part of the dissenting church. He was part of what was called the Confessing Church. They even had their own underground seminary because clergy had to be approved by the Nazi regime and appointed by the Nazi regime and faithful to. In a little book, what it meant to be a good German Christian published by the Nazi party. Well, Bonhoeffer was part of the confessing church that confessed Christ only as Lord and Savior. 
It's a whole article on cheap grace. Grace without confession. Grace without repentance. Grace without the communion and communion without the confession first. And grace that doesn't require the death of Christ on the cross. But God is just a nice guy who took care, takes care of us anyway and we don't need to focus on that cross. I've told the story before and Eric's asked me to tell it again in not too many weeks. When Kathy and I, and I was, I was still an engineer officer teaching French, Kathy and I ran a retreat weekend for the cadet chapel at West Point. So we had, oh, about 20 couples one particular weekend. And of the couples, all of the guys and half of the gals were going to be lieutenants in the Army in a couple of months. So we're at a little convent up in Newburgh, New York, very pretty little chapel, with about a five-foot-high, kind of slightly abstract, carved figure of Christ on the cross, painted. It was tilted above the door, so he was looking down at you. And one of the brides-to-be, I don't think she was going to be a lieutenant, she was one of the civilian fiancés, came to me after one of our group discussions that we held in the chapel because it was out of the way of the nuns in their working convent. It was a nice setting. Major B, see I wasn't PD yet, I was Major B. Can we find another place, do they have another place we could meet for our next discussion? What's the matter, dear? Well, I'm not, she was a Southern Baptist. And a Southern Baptist, an old school Congregationalist, wouldn't even have the empty cross on the wall. They avoided the symbol. The empty cross, of course, is the risen Christ. The suffering in some traditions is, is focused on with that crucifix, with the Latin that's the Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, on it. Being good Southern Baptist, she'd never seen that before, not up close and personal, and it kind of haunted her. So she and I went to see Sister Mary Martha, who ran the retreat part of the convent. And we shared this young lady's discomfort. And Sister Mary said, dear, that's the starkest symbol of God's love that my sisters and I know. That that happened for us and for our salvation. And on the way to lunch, the young lady said, Major B, I'm happy to be back in the chapel after lunch. She saw the symbol that that had to happen. Not a symbol of horror like poor Peter saw it, but a symbol of the greatest love. And then Jesus ups the ante. And it's also been said, C.S. Lewis said this, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it. If you want an easy religion, don't be a Christian. Jesus says you're not going to have it easy. And yes, there are those I know I've mentioned Ray Stevens before. A few of the folks of some years remember him as a musician. The comedy things, he's still doing them in his old age. And he sang a song entitled, Would Jesus Wear a Rolex? Reflecting on television preachers who, who preach the peace and prosperity gospel that you'll have an easy life and lots of wealth if you just follow Jesus our way. Jesus doesn't say it like that. He says, take up your cross. Be counter to this world 
in taking up the things of God. And the last thing Christ promised, he says, yes, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. In terms of healing, it is. But in terms of following him all the way, he kind of countermands that a little bit, doesn't he? Take up your cross. Because you need to gain life in God. You need to gain life through Christ. Not the adulation, the fame, the wealth, whatever it is you want in this world. That's fleeting. This too shall pass away, says an old poem. Engraved on the signet ring of a famous king. This too shall pass away, and it's how he lived his life. Those things are fleeting. But to gain our immortal soul, to know that it is safe in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ by accepting that gift on the cross. And it's there. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it. We accept it. Now, accepting it may cause some work later. But the gift is free. The gift is there. God wants us to take that gift. I don't know where your heart is, each of you, in relationship to that gift. You're here, that's a good sign. But do you share that message? That's not easy in our culture anymore, is it? Family Research Institute just published news that the acts of hostility against churches and Christians has about doubled in the last year or so. Whether arson, vandalism, harassment, especially church buildings and bodies, but apparently the respect or the regard for the Christian faith in a nation that was founded by Christians is dwindling. It makes it harder to bear the name, doesn't it? I've told you too that once I was wearing my cross, I cheat on weekdays. I wear a cross instead of a necktie. I don't have to tie it that way. And I went to a restaurant of a different culture from most of us. And they were yucking it up and laughing at me in their language and then said a few derogatory things in mine because I was wearing a cross. I didn't take it off, or will I? We're going to bear that name. We're going to bear that symbol. And Christ says it isn't going to be easy. But don't be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed if someone says, oh, you're one of those. Yes, I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Proud of it. I don't want Jesus to say, hey, David, you denied me. Should I deny you? That's frightening to me. I want to have the strength, the courage, and the voice, not just because I'm a preacher. I know I get a pulpit and a microphone. But we all get chances in our lives to stand up for and talk of how gracious, how merciful, how loving our God is and what Jesus Christ gave for each one of us to restore us to right relationship with that gracious, merciful, and loving God. We're not supposed to bear anything with pride, but bear it with strength. Bear it with courage. Bear it with that same love and grace too, however. Because to focus on the things of this world takes our focus off of, takes our eyes off the true prize of eternal life with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be strong, be faithful, be courageous. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. 
Thank you for having joined us for First Word from First Church. We pray that God has blessed you in some way, in his way, through the message that we have just shared with you. Please join us again. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance over you and give you peace. Amen and amen.